Hey, everybody. Welcome back. We're doing a bonus episode here. I'm with Inian, and we're going to talk about how to make your website faster, which it's it's funny because it's one of those things that, uh, I mean, it makes a difference. I've seen studies where uh, they basically showed that people are, you know, anywhere from, you know, 10 to 20 or 30 percent or times, not percent, times more likely to purchase on websites that are selling things. Um, if it's not something like that, I've had customers complain about the slowness of the website. So you want to have it at least fast enough to where they're kind of going, I keep getting lost on Twitter. Yeah, that's not a good thing. So yeah, Indian, um, you're you're pretty much an expert in this, right? I mean, with the things that you're doing at DeckSecure. And so I wanted to just dive in with you and see, okay, you know, what, what are some of the easy wins? What are some of the maybe um, less easy wins? But yeah, how, how do we measure this? And then how do we how do we make it go faster? Like how do we how do we make this happen? Yeah, that's a lot of questions, but yeah, I'll try to uh, answer them uh, uh, bit by bit. So, uh, first, yeah, question is like where do we start? I guess right. So yeah, how do you know what your baseline is? And that's pretty much the first thing that I do to uh, ensure that we know where we are starting from. There are a set of rules that you can follow as a checklist, but usually that's not the way I go about things because it's you don't know what the high impact items are going to be. And it's not going to be the same for each website. Each website might have different performance issues and uh, you won't know unless you take a baseline performance test. So there are a few different tools to do this. The thing is you might want to set up some sort of like synthetic test benchmark where you're testing basically how your website loads from your computer or you know some data center in a cloud provider. Right. So uh, the main tools here are tools like WebPageTest, which is a great tool where you can test your, how your website loads in a lot of different devices, browsers, and locations in the world. And uh, yeah, so that's a great tool to get started with synthetic performance benchmarks. And it gives you a lot of different uh, metrics, like I'll probably go into some of these metrics later, but uh, it gives you a good baseline of how your site loads, how your site looks as time progresses. So you can see when your site becomes visually complete, for example. And of course, it gives you the entire performance waterfall as well. So you can uh, dive deeper to see if it's like a JavaScript issue, uh, image issue. And from there, I go on to see what are the things I need to optimize, whether uh, I should be optimizing my time to first byte, whether I should be optimizing my JavaScript, or uh, is it uh, image heavy site like an e-commerce website and I should be optimizing the images instead. Yeah, that makes sense. On some of the ones that I've built, for example, yeah, I found that just running it through some of these tools, my images were way too big, right? So they were uh, yeah. super high resolution and just cutting that down made it load way faster. And I was surprised because I thought, oh, well, it just pull the image down. But apparently it takes more time to pull down and then render the image in the web page. And so it makes, it does, it makes a big difference. And then others, yeah, it's been like a single page app or there's some, even with jQuery or something, right? It, it's mm -hmm. trying to do some work. And for whatever reason, it's just really slow. And putting in a couple of optimizations makes it go a whole lot faster. And so knowing yeah. where to put your attention, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So uh, especially with stuff like jQuery, as you mentioned, uh, JavaScript and CSS are render blocking. So which means mm -hmm. that if the the page can't fin continue or start rendering if until the JavaScript has been downloaded, passed, executed, uh, and all of this again, uh, at least the execution these days happens on the main thread, right? So right. that's one reason why even though jQuery might be 
a conceptually just a simple thing in your head it's like you know a, a set of utilities but the rest of the page is sort of blocked by jquery loading and executing on your page and so that's one of the reasons why optimizing javascript and css is important and images of course yeah uh, if you are i am from singapore so the internet connection is pretty good here and if you are developing your website locally you know the chances are the assets are going to load pretty fast but the th- uh, thing is like your users aren't in the same environment you are in when you are developing your website which is massively different right you are probably your home with like a, a high speed internet connection with a fast laptop desktop whatever and your users are probably visiting your site from a mobile device probably when they are in their train and so the environment is really different and yeah. that's why I, uh, i get a lot of people surprised when they see how slowly the slide loads when i show them like a web page test result they immediately take up their uh, laptop and say hey look my i go to my site it loads you know within a second but that's because it's cached in your browser it you are loading it from a laptop in a fast internet connection so it's pretty uh, revelatory for most people when i show them actually how it loads when a person comes to your website for the first time and i load it on say a 3g connection on probably a standard android device right so those are two very different uh, kind of environments and it's uh, interesting to see how much of a difference these factors can make in how fast your page loads oh absolutely so yeah and and for me i mean there are two things one is how how long does it take before they're like i said before off browsing twitter waiting for my page to load which <laughs> means they're probably not coming back and if they are they're not coming back anytime soon right because yeah. uh, i've lost their attention right uh the other the other metric though is yeah am i losing sales right so am i am i measuring this on the other end and i make these enhancements and then all of a sudden I'm selling more stuff, right? Or yeah. you know, my my the business that I work for is selling more stuff, right? Exactly. So we have actually helped a lot of clients, you know, build that case for performance internally. Mm-hmm. Uh and it's not just that hey, I improved my time to first paint by 50% like no one cares about that. Like so to build a case uh internally as well, it's usually important to tie it back to business metrics and order that might be right like uh, in general performance makes for a better user experience and the better user experience can translate to a lot of different things depending on which mm-hmm. site what kind of business you operate whether it you know bet lower bounce rates uh, better conversion rates and as you said there are a lot of studies dating back to even like 2008 where people have shown that performance directly has an impact on business metrics as well one study which stood out for me was where amazon.com basically said that they lost 1% of their revenue when their site slowed down by 100 milliseconds and it's wow. not like yeah it's just 100 milliseconds and imagine at the scale of amazon 1% probably translates to millions or billions of dollars right so uh even all you would think almost insignificant amounts of time matters a lot when it's this un- subconscious right you don't even realize that the site is being slow but you are frustrated by it and you want to leave and probably do something else right and when everyone is competing for your attention performance matters a lot yeah it's it's interesting too just to pile on again to this idea because you mentioned yeah amazon it's 100 milliseconds right which you don't <laughs> feel like you would notice but especially for me with like mobile apps the mobile apps feel off when they're slow right like if i really think about it 
just because I've been doing this long enough and talking to enough people, I could tell you, like, if I really had to put my finger on it, yeah, it just felt a little bit hesitant and that felt weird. And yeah. it's the same thing with our web apps. And so it's it's not something that people can put their finger on except for that it's not the experience they expected. Exactly. Yeah. And it's even when you other stuff that I'm beginning to notice once I started realizing how even these small numbers can make a difference is like, even when you're typing in your editor, right, if there is like a few milliseconds lag, you notice it immediately. Like, oh, yeah. you feel that uh, entire experience is clunky. And if it, it, when it comes down to it, it's probably missing a few frames, right? But the thing is that it's so visible. And, uh, and that's why performance is not just about the loading performance or how fast your site loads, but it also comes mm -hmm. down to uh, interaction, for example. Like when I click a right. button, is the feedback instantaneous? And these are the metrics, uh, things that metrics like total blocking time or uh, first input delay measure to see right. how responsive or interactive your site is. Yeah, makes sense. So let's say that we run some of these tools. You know, we notice that it's not as responsive as we want it to be. It's not running as fast. It, you know, however we decide to measure that, whether it's by feel or with actual numbers, where we're saying, you know, till till it first loads the page, till it's first uh, usable, till I can't remember all the different firsts. You know, until it's completely <laughs> loaded, right? Yeah. Um, it's just just not performing at the level we want. So you mentioned um, image sizes. You mentioned CSS. You mentioned JavaScript. L let's kind of walk through each of these things, and then any other pieces that I left out of those, uh, just yeah. to give people an idea of okay, what do you do with this, right? So what do you do with images? What, what what are you looking for with images? Yeah, so images is usually a good place to start, mainly because it, in terms of bandwidth, that's probably the biggest uh, type of resource on your page, except if you have videos and stuff. So yeah, images, especially, and also for e-commerce sites and, you know, like media websites, sites are getting more and more interactive. You don't find just text-based websites anymore. So, and optimizing your images becomes a bit part of that because Again, uh, when it comes to image optimization, it's not just making them smaller, right? Because you can always give a version which doesn't look good to the user. And it's obviously going to be, be much smaller and say, hey, my site loads fast because all my site uh, images are just like one or two KB. But of course, that's not going to be a good user experience. So a lot of things, as I mentioned, when it comes to performance optimization, it comes down to the user experience. So you can't just do performance optimization without doing the other. And mm -hmm. that's one of the challenges in image optimization because there are just these so many different variables that you need to think about, like what format to use. Uh, should I enable chroma subsampling? Should I what dimension the image should be? Uh, should I use a picture tag? So there are a lot of different parameters that you need to keep in mind. And probably I can walk through a few of these to just give. Uh, yeah. Okay. Okay. Cool. So the first thing that you probably want to do is decide which format the image should be in. So there are different image formats and different formats are suited to different kinds of images. So if you have like a photograph, probably it's good good enough as a JPEG or WebP, uh, which is a newer, not newer, it's all actually it just reached 10 years now, uh, apparently uh -huh. since it was founded. So JPEG is like a 30 year old image format, right? So one, uh, yeah, going back to how you decide your format. So different formats are, suited to different kinds of images. So if it's like a simple vector-based image, you probably want something like SVG, which scales infinitely. But right. also if the image gets too complex, 
you probably don't want to encode it as an SVG because, and it's just easier and lighter to encode it in one of the raster-based formats like JPEG or WebP. So one, it depends on what kind of image you are encoding. And if you decide, okay, it's a raster-based format, it's going to be either JPEG or PNG. PNG is like a lossless format. JPEG is a lossy format. Uh, but usually JPEG compresses better, mainly because mm -hmm. it's a lossy format, right? So, right. and these formats have been around forever. JPEG, as I mentioned, is I think nearly 30 years old and all browsers support it. So you don't need to worry about anything. You can just uh, encode your images as one of these two formats and make sure that uh, you can be confident that any browser is going to pick this up and render it optimally. But the thing is, like image compression research has come a long way since then. And there are these newer image formats that people have been trying out. And each of them has its own trade-offs as well. So again, WebP, as I mentioned, is based on a codec called VP8. So most of these image formats come from a video-based codec because uh -huh. if you think about it, yeah, like uh, if you already have a video codec which optimizes each frame of the video, mm -hmm. and if you just take a frame of the video, it's an image. So a lot of these formats are based on video formats, and WebP is based on the VP8 uh, codec. And WebP again, it's initially for the longest time it was just supported by Chrome, and so you can't. So now we are coming into the territory of browser-specific formats. So there is not this WebP for the longest time was not supported by all the major browsers. It's just recently where uh, when Safari announced support for WebP that you know you can finally use WebP <laughs> in all the different browsers. Uh, right. It was for the longest time just Chrome and Firefox added support for it a few years ago, and I think uh, Safari just launched support for it. So yeah, that's the thing with uh, these kind of formats where takes time for all the browsers to implement the same format. So Firefox didn't implement WebP because they thought you could do a good enough job right. with just JPEG, right? And they poured a lot of time into optimizing the JPEG encoders itself. And mm -hmm. they came up with this uh, encoder called MossJPEG, which does a great job on optimizing JPEGs. So uh, in a lot of these cases, you can get, get away with just optimizing your JPEGs properly. And that's why Firefox held out for a long time and said, hey, we're not going to add the complexity of WebP and there are other new image formats which are coming. So I'm not going to uh, burden the browser with you know, supporting an extra codec. But again, because of the WebP was just so popular, I guess, like uh, Firefox caved in, now Safari is also implementing it. But the thing is the industry has already moved to newer image formats now. Like finally, when you can <laughs> start sending WebP to everyone, it's like, hey, WebP is like, you know, so old now. Like uh, you should be using something like AV, uh, IF, which is like the latest and greatest in image format. So AVF is pretty cool. It's like really a step change when it comes to performance improvements. And uh, yeah, it's only supported in Chrome again. In Firefox, it's supported behind a flag. Hopefully the other browsers add basically, which is Safari, add support to it soon, which they will, I think, because they are one of the companies behind the Alliance, which built this codec. Mm -hmm. So I'm assuming that, you know, it's just a matter of time before they add support to it. And it's royalty-free. It has hardwood, hardware decoding support. The main disadvantage with AVIF is that it's slow to encode, and it's, like, significantly slower to encode, like, like five to ten times slower, probably, oh, wow. uh, to uh, encode. The decoding speed is sort of the same, and 
the thing is like JPEG encoders and decoders have been optimized a lot because it's right. just been so ubiquitous and so been there for so long. AVF, the decoding speed is okay, but like encoding speed is like really, really slow. And the other drawback with AVAF is that it has no progressive rendering. So progressive rendering means, you might have noticed this if you are on a very slow internet connection, mm -hmm. where you might notice if the images load from top to bottom, layer by layer. Like, right. Uh, so what, not layer is probably not the right term, but line by line, uh, I yeah. can see the image load, right? Uh, progressive rendering is basically the technique where the entire image is loaded up front, but at a lower resolution. And as more data comes in, uh, the resolution gets sharper and sharper. So this is not yeah. like loading like a thumbnail or something and then swapping out, out with the actual image. It's the actual image, which is loading uh, with the role resolution first. And, you know, it's sort of getting upgraded over time. And this is cool because even if the image is like, say, 30, 40% loaded, you sort of know what the picture is, even if it's not right. fully loaded, which makes for a great user experience. And uh, But the problem is AVAF doesn't support this mode, but usually it's still a good uh, thing to uh, go ahead with because it's just so much smaller than uh, your JPEGs and WebPs that uh -huh. it doesn't matter even if it doesn't support uh, progressive rendering mode. It just loads so quickly that it's worth uh, exploring these formats. And there are like other formats, which again, I think are probably too much to get into, but like... Uh, probably. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So so which which way do you recommend that people go then? I mean, should you just start out with JPEGs just for simplicity's sake? Or should you be considering Web WebP or AVF? That's the thing. It depends on how your tooling is set up. So if you are using a CDN, probably they support uh, the basic formats like WebP already. So it's probably uh -huh. just, you know, enabling that on your CDN. But for uh, if you're already using a separate tool to optimize a uh, service to optimize your images like uh, DeckSecure or uh, some of the other tools in the market, it's again pretty simple to get started with uh, right. these other formats as well. So yeah, it depends on how complex it is. Of course, if you can do it, you should probably do it. But again, it depends on how much time you have, whether it's worth mm -hmm. the investment, uh, how much smaller does your site become, how much faster does it become. And yeah, so that question will sort of vary, I guess, from company to company. But you know, you can sort of evaluate it uh, and see if it's worth the investment to go ahead with one of these newer image formats like AVAF, or if just a WebP is good enough, right? Because it's supported by most mm -hmm. major browsers now, and it's better than JPEX in most cases. So yeah, yeah, that's one way that you can think about it. Yeah, that makes sense. Then, as far as size goes, um, is is there a good way to optimize that? The the reason I ask is because some images, for example, if it's an e-commerce site, right, there might be two sizes. You know, you kind of have the thumbnail, and then you have the the, the main size and maybe you have another size for mobile or something. But then I see others like logos, right? That need to, you know, it feels like you have to have 20 different sizes of it. So <laughs> how, how do you know what sizes you need? And how do you optimize for that? So that it doesn't, you know, cause you get a smaller resolution and it blurs out. And so you want and you want it to be sharp on the phone and things like that. So, so how do you handle all of that stuff and still make it load quickly? right? So you're getting quality and speed. Yeah. So the trade-off here is to figure out how many sizes of images you want. Typically, what I've seen companies do is have one for mobile, one for desktop, probably one for tablet or something like that, right? Mm -hmm. uh, the thing is, you can 
generate multiple versions of your image, but that involves some compute cost as well. I mean, if it, you're a static right. website, probably doesn't matter much. If you're an e-commerce store with like millions of inventory with different images, it's going to, uh, that's one of the factors you need to consider. And the other thing is also the cache hit rate in your CDN. So uh-huh. if it's just a URL where the same image is being loaded across your entire user base, it's probably going to be cached by a CDN because it's a popular image. But if you stay, go to the extreme and generate like 10 different versions of your image for the same URL or like same image, mm-hmm. the cache rate for each of that is going to drop, which means that the browser needs to bypass your CDN and, you know, go I to the origin you. server, which is going to be slower. So that's another factor that you need to consider when thinking about how many different sizes of the images to generate. And it's a point of diminishing returns after a certain point where, yeah, you might be able to add another breakpoint and, you know, figure out, okay, I can probably create a separate image for this particular breakpoint, but is it worth the upfront compute cost? Is it worth the loss to cash misses? Uh, That's something that needs to be evaluated uh, by every person who's trying to do this. Gotcha. And uh, you can just kind of follow along with that and look at the logs from your CDN and stuff, right? To see if you're having cache misses and stuff like that. Yeah. And the other thing that you also need to think about is choosing the right quality for the images, because Mm -hmm. apart from the format, the quality is the next big thing that you need to tune, which can get a significantly big improvement depending on the settings that you use. Again, this is a very hard problem to solve, mainly because some images look good even if you bring it down to, say, 50 quality, and some images Uh start looking bad even if you just bring it to 90 or something, right? So the reason is because this quality number doesn't mean anything to the user. It's just a number Mm -hmm. that goes inside the encoder algorithm, which doesn't really mean, hey, like, you know, uh, 80 quality is going to be like 10% worse than something with of a higher quality. It doesn't mean that at all. It just is a number that goes into an encoding algorithm and which makes it very hard to choose the right quality for these different images, especially if you want to, you know, there's no one quality which works well across all your images, right? So uh, that's one of the challenges that companies usually face when they to uh, start going down the road of optimizing their images because Sometimes, you know, your marketing department might call up and say, hey, the site is faster, but this one image looks bad. Then what do you do? Like, do you increase the quality for all your images? Do you decrease it for all your images? Like, you're always trading off between the quality and the size of the image. Right. And therefore, the performance. So it becomes hard to reason about uh, decisions like that. Yeah, but it makes sense in in the same vein, right? That, okay, you know everything else looks great, but for whatever reason, this one image looks bad. So yeah, I can increase the quality there, but then get yeah. all of the performance gains from everything else. So again, and, yeah, yeah, it's <laughs> nothing comes for free, right? So there right. are some performance <laughs> uh, trade-offs you need to make. One of the things you can do uh, to mitigate this problem is uh, use something called a perceptual quality, which tries to approximate what quality means for a human eye. Mm-hmm. So there's been a lot of research that's gone into this to figure out, okay, for example, humans are more sensitive to brightness changes than color changes. Uh, there are some... Oh, interesting. Uh, yeah, with the, mainly because your eye has a lot more rods, which has, uh, uh-huh. and, than cones. And cones are, sens- are receptors for color and rods are receptors for uh, brightness. So, and 
it didn't make sense when I initially thought about it, but when you actually split up the image into you know, the color components and the brightness components, you can see there's a lot more detail in the brightness components than in the color components. And even old encoders like JPEG use this to their advantage where they are able to say, hey, I may be able to throw away some information on the color channel, but keep the brightness channel intact so that to the user, it doesn't feel like there is a lot of change in the optimized image compared to the original image, but I'm getting a lot of cravings based on that. So again, yeah, going back to choosing the right quality, there are different perceptual quality metrics you can use, like uh, SSIM, DSSIM, PSNR. PSNR is a bad one, but there are these different metrics that you can use. So it's sort of like a meta metric that you want to keep it fixed, and that will tell you what quality to use. So gotcha. uh, yeah, that's one way to get past the problem of choosing the quality for each kind of image, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like there are kind of levels to this, right? So initially you start out with, yeah, getting it to the proper size and then you look at it and, you, and then you start playing with quality and, mm -hmm. and color and brightness and things like that to try and get it to look nice and still save you a little bit of that time downloading and rendering the image. Exactly. Yep. So I, I kind of want to move on. I mean, we're programmers. This is a programming show. <laughs> and, you know, as much as we like talking about images, it's like, okay, I'm going to tell my designer to make it look nicer, right? And give them maybe yeah. some guidelines from that conversation um, or even just point them to this episode. But CSS and JavaScript and build tools, that that's kind of my wheelhouse, right? That's the realm yeah. I live in. So what kind of optimizations? Let's start with CSS just because it feels simpler. I don't know if it is simpler. But it feels simpler, right, to, to make CSS uh, more performant, you know, whether it's, you know, minification or, you know, some other tools like that. What should I be looking at with my CSS? Because you said it also blocks the main thread when it pulls it in and, you know, parses it. So, so yeah, how do I make that faster? CSS, again, yeah, it's probably one of the other things that you need to look at because, as I mentioned, it is render blocking. So, basically, the user sees a white page until the CSS is able to do something for uh, for the user. So there are different things to do for CSS optimization. Again, everything comes down to loading lesser. Can you load lesser CSS on your initial page load? And uh, which loading lesser, of course, means that you know the size is going to be lesser, uh, the browser is going to spend lesser time parsing it and executing it. And there are different techniques to do this. One technique uh, that people use is called a critical CSS. So this means that you just load the CSS that's required for the viewport and lazy load everything else. So say you, most websites have something like a banner image or you know like the header navbar. Th this gives some indication to the user that hey the server is up, the page is loading, just hang on there. Right? So it's the first indication that something is painted on the screen. And to optimize that, what you can do is that you can inline the CSS within the HTML itself instead of loading it separately outside. And the advantage is that once the browser gets the HTML uh, and if the CSS is inline, it can immediately start painting something on the screen. And this means that there is no separate round trip to go fetch the CSS. Uh, it's just much faster because you know the CSS is in the, is in the HTML itself. And there are some heuristics around this as well, where people say you need to encode it within the first 14 kilobytes of the HTML. Uh -huh. 
so that's because that's like the first packet that gets sent out uh, size of the first packet that gets sent out from the CDN or server to the user. And if you're able to do that, that's like really the best you can do because once the browser gets the first packet of HTML, it means that, you know, it's going to start painting something on the screen, which is perfect. Right. So that's one technique which you can use to optimize CSS. And the other thing is, again, making sure the CSS itself is minified, properly optimized. There are different techniques that you can use where, you know, you if you know that the browser is a modern browser, can you further remove rules that you use for your older IE browsers and stuff like that? Mm. Can you create a different bundle that's optimized for modern browsers and you don't prefix, you know, all your CSS properties and stuff like that? So that's one thing you can do. Um, and with respect to all resources, like, can you use a more modern compression format so usually gzip is one of the compression techniques that's been there again mm -hmm. forever there are more modern it's usually built into your web server too and so exactly people you turn it on because it's a switch <laughs> exactly uh there are newer ones but the problem is again it's not built into web servers uh you need to probably uh do some more work to get it up and running the newer one is called broadly so uh that's mm -hmm. again a compression format which behaves like gzip but you know is much better in terms of uh, encoding speed at the same encoding speed you get better compression uh, results so that's if your cdn supports it or if your server supports it i think again with nginx you probably need to recompile it with like broadly enabled and stuff like that so mm -hmm. it might, might not be as simple as just turning it on in your server config but again it's worth the gains uh, for text-based resources like JavaScript and CSS. If you can turn on Broadly, you definitely should be doing that. Right. And Broadly is B-R-O-T-L-I, correct? Yes. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So Just I, so people can look these, it up. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of these are based on Swiss deserts, if I'm right. Yeah. Uh -huh. A lot of the uh, image compression, Butterogly, Broadly, a lot of these are based on Swiss deserts, if I'm right. <laughs> Oh, don't tell me that, because then I'll go look it up and get hungry. <laughs> yeah. So so does this hold for JavaScript too then, as far as just the compression algorithms and things like that? Yeah, so for JavaScript, the transport, of course, you can minify it, make sure it's properly broadly. Again, with JavaScript, there's a whole different set of problems you need to tackle when it comes to single-page apps, code splitting, how do you load just the code that's required. With CSS, it's probably a bit more easier but with JavaScript, because of the way our tooling has evolved, if you don't do anything, I guess, by default, you just get this massive JavaScript bundle, which mm -hmm. contains the code for every single part of your website. And loading it up front, again, makes it look more like a native app, I guess, in terms of loading behavior where you load everything up front, rather than what makes websites powerful, where you just load what you need for that particular page and you know slowly start uh, loading code in the background or only when a person visits a particular route, stuff like that. So yeah. that's like a whole different beast uh, uh, to tackle in terms of what you can do to optimize your JavaScript. And a lot of the frameworks are recently started doing more stuff in the space. Like for example, Next.js does sort of manages the Webpack config mm -hmm. for you so that, uh, you know, like a lot of research on how to make that Webpack config better in terms of code splitting. So you get that out of the box when you start using Next.js. And but if you are managing your own Webpack config and you know building on top of like React or Vue, you probably need to 
uh, do a bit more work in figuring out what is the right uh, threshold for code splitting and so on. So uh, for those that are newer, do you want to just explain the concept of code splitting? I, I know some people get way into this stuff and then other people, it's like, well, somebody else did the build tool and I don't even know what you're talking about. That's true. So code splitting is generally the concept of loading the code only in routes where you need the code. So if, say if you're on the homepage, you probably don't need the code for your setting page in your homepage itself. But because of how uh, single page apps, the tooling of uh, SPS have evolved, usually what happens is that your Webpack or your whatever build tool you're using is going to output a huge JavaScript bundle, which loads the code for all the routes of your website. So even if you are just going to the homepage, it's actually going to pull the code to render your profile page, for example, which is not required. So what uh, tools like Webpack have done is introduce this concept of code splitting where you can define different entry points to Webpack and say, hey, treat this as a separate entry point and build me a JavaScript bundle from this entry point. So you can define multiple entry points to your application. So you can say, hey, most people who are going to the homepage are probably also going to the pricing page. So it's probably fine if both of them are in the same bundle. But you know, people rarely visit settings page, for example. So in that case, you might want to define a separate entry point for that and uh, make sure that that gets generated as a separate JavaScript bundle. Yeah, the main advantage is that you're not loading the code for everything all the time and the bundles are separated. And yeah, that's the basic concept behind code splitting. Awesome. Well, um, are there other things then that we can be doing with our CSS and JavaScript to make things quicker? Yeah, with respect to these, I think these are the big ones, like uh -huh. uh, just load uh, inline stuff that is super critical to the page. Uh, make sure that you're using proper compression techniques. With respect to JavaScript, again, there is a whole lot of things where you can lazy load JavaScript and mm -hmm. dynamically import certain JavaScript. You can be using better node modules where, you know, for example, if there is a module which is pretty heavy in terms of JavaScript size, you can look on around for alternatives to see if there are alternatives which are smaller, but achieve the same thing that you do. And there's a good site here called Bundle Phobia that I like, which basically shows the size of different JavaScript node modules and actually suggests alternatives for the model that you're looking, which might be smaller. Makes yeah. sense. So, yeah, there are a lot of things that you can do on the JavaScript side of things, but for CSS, these are the top things that I would start with. Makes sense. All right, well, let's move over to JavaScript. So how big is too big? You know, because we're talking about the, the payload size, right? And you're saying you might find something that, yeah, is a little bit smaller. So where, where do you start looking to start saying, okay, you know, this is, this is too much? Right. So the thing is, you usually define something like a performance budget and say that, hey, uh -huh. I want my JavaScript budget to be not more than 200, 300 KB uh, okay. compressed, something like that. Right? So, and then you go work based on that. So that gives you a good target to hit. And this is, again, just your first-party JavaScript, right? You're not even looking at third-party JavaScript, like your tag managers inject, which is also going to add to your performance budget. But mm -hmm. at least your first-party budget, you can set. And uh, tools like Webpack support this, that you can say that, hey, you know, you can even break my build if the generated bundle sizes goes beyond a certain point. And right. uh, so that's one way to get started. And the other way is, again, with respect to establishing a baseline is there are different tools to analyze what your bundle contains. 
So there are tools like Webpack Pre Analyzer, which just generates this uh, graph of what are the modules that are there in your bundle. So if your entire bundle is say like you know 500 KB of JavaScript, uh, you want to know which node modules or which uh, routes are taking up a lot of space in that bundle. So what this uh, Webpack Pre Analyzer does is that it tells you that you know out of this 500 KB, 50 KB is taken up by uh, this date library as you're saying 100 KB is taken up by React, uh, 80 KB is taken up by this you know mm -hmm. password checking library or something. So again, that gives you a visual representation of where to start. Again, it all comes down to figuring out which is the high impact stuff and you right. start going from there, right? So uh, there are a lot of micro optimizations you can get into, but probably are not worth it. So this is what I usually uh -huh. do is like figure out, okay, what is the... A bundle size right now. What are the modules inside those bundles? How do I start either choosing better modules or lazy loading some of the bundles? So for example, there are some things where it is a complex thing that you're trying to achieve and there's no way to get past it. So in those cases, you just need to make sure that you know the code is just loaded on demand uh, only when it's required, on the route it's required, or if there's say some complex thing happening only when someone clicks a button. So you might be able to, using Webpack, it's actually pretty simple to say that, you know, uh, only when this button is clicked, go and uh, fetch this other JavaScript bundle, which does this complex thing, and execute it in the browser. So with some stuff like dynamic imports, you can actually do this where you load a heavy JavaScript bundle only when a user interaction happens or uh, when a certain uh, sequence of events happen. It's only then when you load these heavy bundles. So yeah, those are the initial things that I would start off with when I'm trying to optimize a single page app. Awesome. All right. Well, we're kind of getting toward the end of our time. I guess I'm wondering, you know, as far as next steps go, you know, you mentioned, uh, what is it? Page speed test? Web page test. Web page there test. Are, that's what it was. A lot of tools here. <laughs> there are a lot of them out there and they'll tell yeah. you good info. Um, yeah. I think the Chrome Dev Tools also give you uh, good info on a lot of that stuff. But yeah, one thing that I found is that there are tools, and and the reason that you're on is because you you work on one of these tools, right? So people can go and essentially um, pay Dexsecure to do this kind of work for them, right? So it's like, hey, mm -hmm. here are my assets, and then you guys do a lot of this magic, right? So I don't have to think about image size and brightness and whatever. And then, okay, is my payload size on my JavaScript good enough? Or do I need to start, you know, you guys do a lot of this stuff. So if if somebody wanted to, because I think we've started, talked a lot about how to get started on your own, but if somebody mm -hmm. wanted to hire you guys, like how do they get started with you? And yeah, what's kind of the next step if you want to use a tool like Dexsecure to make this happen? Yeah, so uh, Dexsecure, what we do is we basically automate a lot of these techniques that uh, I mentioned in this podcast, but also we try to make it easy to integrate and install on your website. So if you're already using a CDN, it means it's pretty simple to use Dexsecure because Dexsecure just sits behind your CDN and uh, okay. it's it points to your asset domain and optimizes everything from your CSS, JavaScript, fonts, uh, images, videos. All of these things are optimized by default and you don't need to do complex setup like you know changing your URLs or like changing your HTML a lot. You just need to make a DNS change and point it to Dexsecure and that's it. All your clients loading uh, even mobile apps, uh, websites, everything that's pulling assets from your asset domain. 
is going to be automatically optimized by our asset optimizer. So that's uh, pretty easy. There are other tools in the market to do something like this, but we are the only ones which do it out of the box with respect to performance. So you don't need to know about any of this magic that's happening behind the scenes. And we uh, choose the quality settings, the compression settings, uh, all the new APIs that browsers support. We make use of all these new APIs, features, um, to make sure that your site loads as fast as possible uh, with very little upfront integration effort. So yeah, if you want to try it out, uh, we have a free tier. You can go to decksecure.com and we have an offer especially for devchat and JavaScript uh, Java listeners. So you can go to devchat.tv slash fast and uh, you get a special offer for uh, trying out DevSecure's asset optimizer on your website. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, so devchat.tv slash fast. And what what is the special offer? Or do they have to go click the link to figure it out? So the usually it basically doubles the tier, uh, free tier that we offer. So Oh, there uh, you go. Usually, yeah, so that's a pretty sweet offer for uh, people who are listening in. Uh, our free tier is usually 100,000 uh, 100, optimization requests uh -huh. and 20 gigabytes of bandwidth. But for JavaScript Java listeners, we have increased it to 200,000 optimization, optimization requests and 40 GB of bandwidth every single month that you get for free when you sign up using that link. I love it. And the reason that I love this, and especially with the free tiers, they're nice because uh, I don't have to make like this major commitment. And yeah. for some of my smaller projects, that's enough, right? And so then it gets it gets going fast. I get a lot of the traction I'd get out of a system like DeckSecure. And then as things kind of move ahead from there, you know, maybe I get to the point where I'm pushing the limits of that free tier. But at that point, I know what it's doing for me. I can see how 